His name is faithful. Uh, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading of his word tonight. It's my prayer. You may be seated. We have based this series on the truth of Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. Uh, His name is Faithful. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Now, these two passages are contextually linked together that I have read for you tonight. Uh, The promise in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 is that he which hath begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day, until the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, Sin has its day, but Jesus has his day as well. And what is promised to us in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 speaks of that time when the purposes and plans and promises of our Lord Jesus Christ are going to come to fulfillment. There will come a day when the prayer that he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, (laughs) that prayer is going to be answered. The second part that he told us, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, that's going to be answered. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That will be answered. And on that day, we're going to be very, very grateful for the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Who began and completed a good work in us. In the meantime, though, of course, as we saw last week, we're living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That was from Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14, where that is exactly spoken to us, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And so we know that God has begun a good work. We know that he's going to be faithful to complete that work. We know there will come a day uh, then when Jesus is going to fulfill his promises to us. And uh, his kingdom will come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, But in the meantime, here we are living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Our task as believers is to not just uh, be presumptive. Uh, To say, well, you know, Jesus is going to do his thing, so I don't have to do anything. Uh, I can simply count on the faithfulness of God to do his work. But we noted last week that that's really not our objective. God has assigned us some tasks, some things to do. There are things that we need to do. And one of those things, of course, was to faithfully hold forth the word of life. And tonight we'll consider a much more personal view, though, of the faithfulness of God. And that is how that God's faithfulness works in us to complete or to finish what he has started. To finish what he has started. I could take a little time tonight and rehearse many, many things that would give evidence to the fact that I don't always finish what I start. Uh, A lot of projects that I've started over the years that I just never got completely 
finished. Uh, I've tried to do better in recent times. Uh, although uh, having the time then, I know the time and the effort that's going to be involved in finishing something. And so <laughs> I've gotten a little better at procrastination. I tend to just put things off because I know how much time it's going to take and how hard it's going to be to actually finish this project. And uh, so I just put it off. Well, God is not into procrastination. And what God finishes, he starts. Our God's an on-time God. Always. He's always at work. He's always accomplishing his purposes. And he always finishes what he starts. I, I love First John chapter 3 and verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that. We know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, that's an easy passage for me to read. It was easy for me to read to you tonight. It's an easy passage for you to read without really noticing, if we're not careful, just what that passage says. Right now, we are told, we know about the right now. Right now, we are the sons of God. I hope you know that tonight. Uh, I hope everybody watching from home or maybe picking up this video sometime in the future, I hope you know that. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Uh, now we are the children of God, the offering, offspring of God. Uh, Jesus told us how that is supposed to happen. Because when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then uh, to those who believe on his name are given the power to become the sons of God, even to those that believe on his name. And so it is that act of believing where we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior that makes us to become the sons of, or the, of God or the children of God. So we know what we are right now. Right now, we are the children of God. God's our Father. But we do not, don't know a whole lot about what we're going to be. You know, God has just given us a little fragment or two of information about our eternity in heaven. And when we think about that for a moment, it ought to just really leave us in awe. Because we know so much about our three score and ten. And I hope you know what that passage refers to. The psalmist said, the psalmist Moses said that the days of man are three score and ten. That's 70 years old. And if they be by reason of strength, 84 score. Uh, yet their strength is labor and sorrow. The psalmist Moses says it's hard to get old. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Uh, but uh, normally, you know, three score and ten is what is allotted as our normal lifespan. And it might even be 80. It might even be 90. And so the Bible speaks of this and how our days have a certain predictable number as we are moving then through life. We're, we know then about this three score and ten. We know what we're doing. We know about this life and we've got so much information about it. But then there's eternity. Eternity. We don't have much information. All we know about the gates of pearl, streets of gold, mansion over the hilltop. In my father's house are many mansions. The chief feature of eternity is that we're going to be with Jesus Christ. Amen. That's, that's the chief feature of eternity. We're going to be with him forever and enjoy him forever. And it's almost as if God said, that's all you need to know. <laughs> 
You're going to be with me forever. And, we'll enjoy, and they'll, they'll be unbroken fellowship then with him forever. That's all you need to know. John said it. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when Jesus comes, when he shall appear, we'll be like him. And it also gives us the information as to how that final transformation is going to take place. It's right there in the text. For, that means because, we shall see him as he is. There's something about seeing Jesus in all of his fullness and in all of his glory that will change us forever. We'll be like him forever. So uh, we can rest assured tonight that though there's a lot that we don't know and there's a lot of supposition our eagerness to know has us as, as easily reflected in all the people who've written books about the times that they died and went to heaven. Oh, it seemed like there for a while all you had to do was have a near-death experience and come back or even just a dream. And, uh, and, and all of a sudden you could tell everybody what heaven's like and, and people would be lining up to listen. Um, I listened to a sermon by Jesse Duplantis. I've mentioned that before. He's a, uh, I don't know what he is really. I was going to say a Pentecostal evangelist, but I'm not sure he's exactly what Jesse is. Jesse's Jesse, but uh, uh, I know he had a vision when he was in Magnolia, Arkansas some years ago. I heard him talk about it. When he went to heaven, he's written a book about it. Don't buy it. <clears throat> Don't buy it. This is not an endorsement. Um, but I did uh, hear from the manager because my wife's from Magnolia. We were around there. I actually stayed in that hotel and asked him about it. He said, to this day, there are people who would go to that hotel and request to be able to stay in that room uh, that Jesse Duplantis went, went to heaven from. Uh, a lot of people have written a lot about heaven. And I, I, I'm saying this a little bit facetiously. And maybe I shouldn't be kidding about it. As a lot of people are giving a lot of information out about heaven. And a lot of people are just gobbling this up. But you look, take a long look at 1 John 3 and 2. It doth not yet appear. God hasn't told us everything. And if we start trying to tell people what God didn't tell us, we're, on, we're, we're in a bad place. But that does tell us absolutely, verifiably then, that what God has started... In us, he's going to finish. Romans 8, 29, another classic passage. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. I want to pause there for a moment just to give you a little, com a little comment because a lot of people get really messed up on this passage. Uh, first of all, it speaks to us of the foreknowledge of God. God is never surprised. God is never caught off guard. Nothing ever happens that God says, wow. No. Why? Because God has a quality known as foreknowledge. That means that God knows beforehand what's going to happen. Because we cannot comprehend the foreknowledge of God who sees the end 
as well as we see the beginning, that leaves us with a lot of puzzling questions. And a lot of people even reject the whole Christian faith over this one issue. Because after all, if I knew something was about to happen to somebody that I loved that was bad, I'd do everything I could to stop it. That's human reasoning. But we're treading off into something that really is not biblically sound. Because the foreknowledge of God sees all the way to the end. All the way to the end. He knows how things are going to work out. He knows how things are going to turn out. And he, he does things in accordance with that foreknowledge, he, whom he did foreknow. But in this context, he is speaking of it only in relation to our salvation, which means that God, yes, knew who was going to be saved. Nobody is ever saved that God says, well, imagine that. I didn't think he'd ever be saved. No, God knows. And within the operation then of God's foreknowledge, which is entirely mysterious to us and entirely uh, beyond our ability to understand, God says, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. You can't think like I think, God says. Your brain's not wired for it and can't handle it. But within that concept of the foreknowledge of God, then we also see the truth of his predestination so that he knew or he predetermined something. There was an outcome that was predetermined by God. And that predetermined outcome was that those that he knew beforehand who were going to believe were going to become like Jesus Christ. They'd be conformed to the image of his son. It simply tells us this was God's plan all along. That everyone who believes was going to be conformed to the image of his son whom he did foreknow. And his reason why he did that was so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Again, there are all kinds of people who have ran with this passage and tried to make it say something that it didn't say. Uh, no, this was not that, uh, like some have said, that God was going to make us all little gods. No, no, that's, that's not what he said. It is simply a companion passage of Scripture to the one we've already read in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, uh, that we would be like Him. That's what it means. We'd be like Jesus. So that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestine, them He also called. Uh, no one is ever saved without that calling of God. God has to call us and convict us to salvation. He calls us to salvation through the preaching of the gospel. But whom he called them, he also justified. And whom he justified them, he also glorified. And the point is that from the point of God's foreknowledge to the point of that glorification, there is an unbroken chain that is never, has never been broken, not a single time. God, again, is not going to be surprised. And somebody that he thought was going to be saved ends up saying no and dies and goes to hell. No, that is not possible. And what he says here is absolutely true of every person who has ever been saved or ever will be saved. Because this is talking about God's plan for those whom he foreknew. If you try to take Romans 8 and make it an explanation of how God deals with lost people, you've messed up. That's not what it's about. It's about how God deals with saved people. Whom he did foreknow. God had a plan, a purpose. What was it? That we'd be conformed to Jesus. Guess what? That plan is going to happen. 
And the glory that he predetermined in us is going to happen. And not one of us, not one person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is going to stop short of glory. It's not going to happen. We've got Romans 8, 29, and 30. Very powerful passage of Scripture. We put these things together then tonight, and God will be faithful to perform it. Philippians 1 and 6, he will be faithful. God is faithful and true. Jesus is faithful and true. What he has begun, he will finish. And we know that that finish is glorious. So if you're saved tonight, you know that you're saved. Now are we the sons of God. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. We're real solid on that. We know we know that we've been saved, at least I hope you do. God does not intend for our faith to be a question mark, but an exclamation point. I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. It's not a maybe so, hope so, think so, might be so, not a question mark. God wants our faith to be an exclamation point. I'm saved. I know I'm saved. Yes, I know I'm a child of God. And I know where I'm going. I I know that I am destined for glory. And God is going to make that happen. God was faithful to begin it. God is faithful to complete it. (laughs) Aren't you glad we serve a faithful God? God's faithful to begin it. He's faithful to complete it. Uh, some of y'all remember uh, the the, song, the great songwriter and theologian John Denver. Uh, <laughs> John Denver wasn't a theologian. Uh, that Rocky Mountain High stuff would tell it. I'm not even sure exactly what all he was, but uh, he wrote a great song and sang it. I guess he wrote it called Grandma's Feather Bed. Any y'all remember Grandma's Feather Bed? I like that song because my grandma had a feather bed and my grandma Harvey and and I knew what it was like. But I've learned that it's not just feather beds. It's all of them. You know, we, uh, Nancy and I bought a, a new bed not too long ago. And uh, uh, they told us that we'd have to turn the mattress every now and then. Because as you sleep on them, they tend to kind of sag. And that's just the way it is. And it's the way our faith can be, too. You can end up firm on both ends. You know where you're going. But what about the middle? You know where you've been. God's begun a good work. Know where we're going. We're headed to heaven. But what about in the middle? Does our faith kind of sag in the middle? And that's the difficult time for us. In the midst. Living in the midst. God is working right now in your life if you're saved. And God is working in my life right now. To make us into what he intends for us to be. And we know know that ultimately we're going to arrive there. But it's not our, our, our time just to content ourselves with whatever we are and whatever's going on. No, God is working in our life right now. In a process that the Bible calls sanctification. It's not spoken of in a lot of different passages. But it's plenty enough for us to understand uh, what it's talking about. And we can see then, first of all, that that God begins the work. That mankind is born, as one writer said, with his back toward God. 
And none of us would ever come to God were it not for the fact that he reaches out to us with the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ under the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit of God. I said it this morning. I'll say it again tonight. I might say it next week, every week. That's okay because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And we hear the truth of the gospel preached, and it is empowered by the Spirit of God. We must never think that something as simple as as air passing over uh, human vocal cords and creating words and thoughts would have any power apart from the power of the Holy Spirit of God. But when this voice or your voice or anybody's voice starts proclaiming the truth of the gospel, that gospel has power, and God can use it to, to touch and convict the heart of a person so that we tell them, hey, you need to get saved. And you know what that person says? You know, you're right. I need to be saved. It's amazing. I see it all the time. It's not anything I do. It's what the Holy Spirit does. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Nobody's ever going to think their way to God. It's not going to happen. Humanity would never come up with the truth of the gospel. We never would. But God did. And it say it pleases him then through the foolishness of a message preached. So the preaching of the gospel, the sharing of the gospel to save those who what? Believe. Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. God begins the work. And the second thing that we see that is self-evident in our text there in Philippians uh, chapter 1 and verse 6 is that the same God who is faithful to begin the work is as faithful for finishing the work as he was in starting it. And the third self-evident truth is that God starts the work and God then is personally active in the work which is how he can guarantee the outcome of the work. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. You know, there's a lot of analogies that are used in Scripture about the Christian life, but the one that perhaps I've identified with the most has been... The, the process of building, of constructing. And any builder knows that he's going to reach a point in a construction project where he has to turn the work over to somebody else. You can't do it all yourself, especially if you have a lot of projects going on. And so you have to turn it over to somebody else. You also learn that that somebody else may not show up when they're supposed to show up. Anybody involved in the building business knows this. They may know what they're doing and they may not. They may do it to the quality that you're uh, accustomed to and that you would do it if you did it yourself. They, they may not. It would be a very rare thing if they could do it even better than you do it and you hold on to those kind of people because they know what they're doing and they're good at it. We call that a a delegation, contracting something out. I I want you to know tonight, God doesn't contract our sanctification out. He doesn't turn the process over to somebody else. (laughs) 
And that somebody else, by the way, includes you and me. Could you imagine what a mess we would make of this if God turned over this all over to us and say, okay, now it's up to you. I've saved you. Now you need to clean up your mess. Mm -mm. God began this work and he's faithful to complete it. Here's another passage of scripture. It says the same thing. I'm not making this up. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God, I pray God, I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. I pray to God. Why? Because he's the one who will do this. What will he do? He'll preserve your spirit and soul and body. Now, this text presents us with a somewhat difficult uh, theological decision. Because normally, you know, when we speak of the threefold nature of men, we, we say a spirit and mind and body. We are spiritual. We have a spiritual side. We have a mental or intellectual side. We have a physical side, spirit and mind and body. And so there's some discussion as to whether the spirit in this passage means the mind and the soul refers to the spirit or whether spirit means spirit and the soul then would correspond to the mind. I'm of the opinion that the soul uh, occur, equates to the mind because the soul is used in a context like this to refer to the personality, the force of life, the life force that is, causes us to be recognizable. It's not just our facial features, but there is a, a life force, a personality that is behind this. And it is that which speaks of the soul, the mind. And so... The sanctification of the Spirit then would come first. That would refer to our salvation. It would then move to the mind, which makes sense when you think about it. it moves to the mind and then to the body with the goal that we might be blameless before the Lord Jesus Christ. What an objective! God starts with the spirit, progresses with the mind. Romans 12, you remember that great passage. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so it starts with the spirit and then God moves to the mind. And from the mind then it moves to the body. We know these things. He that has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, to finish it. As a carpenter, a builder, it is frequently said in that trade that all we lack is finishing up. Carpenters love to say that. Well, all we like is finishing up now. We got it in the dry. All we like is finishing up. That's an inside joke. Because carpenters know that the finished work is the hardest, most expensive, and the most time-consuming part of the project. All we like is finishing up. <laughs> yeah. 
Many a house can, sits for years with the finished work left undone because the owners got impatient and moved in before the finish work was completed. And there's another old saying among, in the building business that if you move into a house before the finished work is done, it'll never be finished. Almost never. That's not a, completely the truth. Because if you ever decide to sell the house, that's when you'll finish it. I've lived the, that out too, and I have the scars to prove it. A lot of Christians, I'm afraid, are, have moved in before their house was finished. And they kind of settled down with the unfinished nature of it. I'll never forget visiting with a good friend of mine. And uh, I pulled up to his driveway. They'd invited us over. And I've never forgotten this. After all these years, never forgotten it. Uh, because when I walked in the, in the door, and, and you know, the, the entranceway looked fine. The living room looked fine. Uh, but then we went back to the kitchen table uh, to get a cup of coffee, and, and all of a sudden, I ran into bare stud walls. With, I mean, they had pots and pans on nails hanging on the walls. Uh, and, and they, they were, now he, had a, he had a simple explanation for that. He said, and this is what he said, and it was the truth because it lived out and he played it out. He said, we were determined that we were going to build this house without borrowing any money. And so we have, we're just finishing it. As we get a little money, we'll finish a little bit more work and do it. And, you know, he was true to his task. He made it happen. But I, I just couldn't help but marvel at how efficient they came, became in, in living with big parts of the house uncompleted. Um, I can see that in a building project. But in our Christian life, if we settle down and just kind of give up on the finished work, and a lot of times that's what happens. Because the finished work is hard. It's costly. It's that task of sanctification. It's where we deal with the things that we really don't like to deal with. And where we talk about the things we don't even like to talk about. Where we address the issues that we don't like to address. And we're dealing with those residual sins and if they were easy to get away from, we'd have already done that for a long time. This is why I'm convinced that there are so many older Christians who love the Lord. And they have achieved a measure of faithfulness. But they live their lives full of hatefulness and bitterness and slander and gossip. And I've seen so much of it as a pastor through the years that one of my constant prayers, I mean, one of my prayers throughout all of my life has been, Lord, help me to get old without getting mean. I'm serious. I'm serious. Help me to get old, Lord, without getting mean. Well, I don't know whether I'm mean or not. You know, I can be mean without trying to be. I have to admit that. And and uh, I can be. I'm certainly old, and, and I know the challenge. You know, somebody I, I, had, I was having a discussion about this very thing one time with an older Christian. And they just said, they said just one thing. I've never forgotten. Preacher, just wait till your health breaks. You're hurting all the time. 
and your kids have abandoned you and your friends have left you. You know, there's a lot of things that happen that happen to life. That's true. But I think about it within the context tonight of just finishing up. Just finishing up. All we lack is finishing up. The finished work. But it's the hardest work. And it's the most expensive work. And it's possible for us to get used to things not being finished. And just kind of settle down with it. And give up on the finished work. Paul would talk about this in Romans 7 and 8. And you'll remember that Romans chapter 7 ends up with that anguished cry. O wretched man that I am who shall deliver me from this body of death. And then Romans 8. I thank God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If our struggle with sin were up to us, we'd never have any victory of all, at all. But it's the power of the Spirit of God living in us and working in, in us that makes it all happen. So I want to close out tonight with just a couple of passages from that great Romans chapter, chapter 8. Excuse me. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or give life to your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren... We are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. You see, a believer never has to say when we sin, well, I just couldn't help it. Yeah, the Spirit of God lives in us. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So we're not obligated to live after the flesh. Because the mighty Spirit of God lives in us. And what is that, by the way? That's the same Spirit of God that gave life to Jesus' mortal body. And that same Spirit can give life to your mortal body. And then Romans 8, 13 then adds this. For if you lived after the flesh, you shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now again, as we have in so many other cases, there's a lot of people who misconstrue that passage. Well, if you live after the flesh, Romans eight thirteen says, you shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. This passage, though, makes a very simple declaration to us. And we could say it like this. The more fleshly our lives are, the more fleshly our lives are, the more we live after the flesh, listen, the more the grave will claim. The more we live after the flesh, the more the grave will claim. If as a believer we choose to live after the flesh and we can, unfortunately, that's all going to go to the grave and be gone. But if we live after the Spirit, <laughs> oh, what a difference that makes. Because what we do in accordance with the leadership and the power and the, and the accomplishment then of the Spirit of God. Oh, the grave has no power over those things. And they go on to be our reward. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will complete it. His name tonight is faithful. Let's stand together, please.